I will be reading part of our sermon passage today. Exodus chapter 40, 1 through 33. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting and on, on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Amen. Thank you, Beth. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who has and who will finish your work. By your word, you tell us that you are gracious, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, and you are abounding in steadfast love. And day after day, you prove yourself to be these things in our lives. Father, even as you have revealed these things about yourself to us, 
we recognize that we have only seen the barest glimpse of the fullness of who you are. And we eagerly, with great anticipation, await the day when we will behold you not in part, but in full. Father, even as we marvel at your gracious mercy, the depth of our need of it is revealed as we recognize that we are constantly tempted and drawn away from you. The sin in us runs deep, and we are prone to look to so many things other than you to satisfy our souls, to settle for so much less even when you offer us yourself and more than we could ever ask or imagine. We are indeed a desperately needy people, and we grieve and are sorry for our sin. How grateful we are then for the blood of your son, Jesus. It is in him and him alone that we find our hope. And we ask for your help. Help to see our sin to which we are so often blinded. Would you search our hearts to the very depths, reveal and expose our sin, drag it out into the light and kill it. Help us to walk in true repentance to live so that others will see you in us, to love others as you have called us to love, to share the gospel in every aspect of our lives, and to trust you, whatever this life and this world may bring. This morning, we lift up your churches who are gathered around our city, throughout our country, and around the world. We pray for you to be magnified and glorified in each of them. It grieves us, even as we know it grieves you more, to see churches being rent asunder by sin that is being brought to light, by idolatry that drives division, and by the recognition that it can be so easy to see the sin that is out there, but so hard to recognize that the sin is in here. And so we pray for repentance and holiness, and unity among your people. Not a false, superficial unity, but one grounded and deeply rooted in your word, so that before the eyes of a watching world, you would be highly honored. This morning, we also pray specifically for our sister church, Long Hollow, as they grieve the unexpected death of one of their pastors, Chris Swain, this week. We pray for great comfort for his family, for his friends, and for that congregation. In the way that only you can, would you please bring light from this great darkness? And would you hasten the day when you defeat the last enemy that is death? And now, we come to the preaching of your word. As we open it, would you speak clearly? I pray that every single thing that I say would be of you and would point us to you. And if it is not, that you would shut my mouth. Use it this morning to save those who are perishing. I pray that your word would sink deep roots into our hearts and where we are different from and fall short of it, that we would be the ones who are changed. It is in the great name of your Son, 
and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask for these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to the book of Exodus. If this is your first time at Redeemer or your first time back with us in a while, we have been in the book of Exodus for a little over a year now, and we are nearing the end, one week away from the end. You heard Beth allude to reading part of the sermon passage this morning. Well, as Jamie shared last week, when we sat down a couple of months ago to plan out sort of this last leg of Exodus, um, we knew that we wanted to try to conclude it before we got to Promotion Sunday in a couple of weeks. So Jamie, being a good boss, looked at the schedule and said, hey, Austin, July 25th, I'm gone. How about preaching six chapters? To which I, being a dutiful and humble underling, said, yes, boss. I was very, very tempted to have the scripture reader just read all six chapters and call it a day because that would have taken all of our time. But I kid, he he really did say that, but it's for a good reason. Because you see, much of the material in chapters 35 to 39 is duplicative of that found in chapters 25 to 31, sometimes verbatim, sometimes in summary form. And we're going to talk about more about why that is in just a few minutes. But we do want to do honor to the text as written. So there are going to be several places where I will point us back to sermons that Jamie and others have already preached in the series and those previous chapters since that information will have already been covered in pretty great depth, and that will allow us to move toward the end this morning. Before we dig into today's text, however, because we are nearing the end, I think it would do us well to step back for just a minute, zoom out, and remind ourselves of how we got to where we are, because this will help us see and more clearly understand exactly what God is doing in the life of his people, because the book of Exodus truly does give us a panoramic view of the life and character and work of God and in his people. And it's my prayer, one of my prayers today, that we would be captivated anew by the splendor of his beauty and his majesty. And I hope that you will. So you likely will recall that at the opening of the book of Exodus, we find God's people enslaved in Egypt, where they've been for 400 years. And then God, through mighty demonstrations of his miraculous power, delivers them from Egypt, defeats its false gods, and clearly demonstrates his power. And he's in the process of bringing them to the land that he has promised them. And this takes up the whole first half of the book of Exodus. Then the second half is taken up with, as Jamie has said several times, not only getting the people out of Egypt, but what? Getting the Egypt out of them. Because shockingly enough, 400 years immersed in a pagan land has had an effect on them. They have much to learn both about who God is and what he expects of them. And so he is teaching them what he is like, what he wants them to do to obey him. And to do this, we see in chapters 19 through 24 that God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. And this is where he gives him the Ten Commandments. It's where he gives him all the law. And we spent several weeks working through the law and its meaning for us. And Moses brings it down off the mountain to the people They promise to obey God, and God confirms his covenant with them. But after that, Moses goes back up on the mountain for 40 days. And in chapters 25 to 31, for seven chapters, God shows Moses in meticulous detail exactly how he wants Moses to instruct the people to construct the tabernacle. He shows them its structure. He shows them all the objects that he wants to be built. And and this is important. And if you want to dig more into it, you can go back to our sermons in May and June where we really worked our way through these. And we'll touch on it a little bit this morning as well. And you know, the conclusion of Moses' time on the mountain should have been a 
joyous occasion in the life of the people when he comes down and says, this is the work that God has given us to do. But as we've looked at over the last four weeks, that is severely disrupted by the events of chapters 32 to 34, particularly the people's choice to flagrantly disobey God by making an idol out of a golden calf and worshiping it instead of the one true God. You know, this was in direct violation of everything God had just commanded them. And following on the heels of all that he's just done for them, this is an especially egregious act of disobedience and breaking of covenant with him. So much so that God says, I am ready to destroy them. We're going to wipe them out and we're going to start over. Then we saw Moses intercede in chapter 33. And God, because he is gracious and merciful, because he is abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger, then in chapter 34 that we looked at last week, he relented from that anger and he renewed his covenant with his people. Now, I know that's a lot of ground to cover and it's taken us a year plus to do it, but it is all of that that brings us to today's text. And if we don't have all that God has done sort of squarely in the front of our minds, then it's very easy to miss the import and the depth of what is happening here. Because you see, having gone through all that happened, having witnessed the people's unfaithful rebellion, having seen God relent from his anger and renew his covenant, then the question should be, well, now what? Where do we go from here? And today's passage is the culmination of the now what? Because that is that Moses is going to assemble the people and instruct them into the work in accordance with what God has shown him that you heard Beth just read. And they're going to do it as the Lord commanded. And that really gets to the, to the heart, to the, to the main point of what I want us to see in the text today. And that's this, because God has and will graciously finish his work of redemption and deliverance. We ought to delight in and eagerly desire to complete the work he has given us. Let me say that again because I know there's a lot in there. Because God has and will graciously finish his work of redemption and deliverance, we ought to delight in and eagerly desire to complete the work that he has given us. So to get there, let's look at the text together that we might better know the character of God and encourage one another to these ends. So look back at chapter 40, verse one with me. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You know, the passage then goes on to review and kind of summarize the components of the tabernacle that God is calling them to build and what that will entail, including you know, the Ark of the Testimony, the veil, the table, the lampstand, the lamps, the incense, the screen, the basin, the court, making the priests holy, anointing them, all of these things. So this is the work that Moses and the people have been called to do. And despite my joking earlier that we can't go back and look at all of it, I will be kind of referring back to some of the things along the way to help us really appreciate what we're reading here. So in light of that, turn back with me to chapter 35. Go to chapter 35, and remember, this comes right after the golden calf incident and God renewing his covenant with his people. So Moses comes down off the mountain, his face literally aglow with the glory of God. And what does he do? What is the first thing out of his mouth? Well, let's read, starting in verses one through three of chapter 35. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, 
These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, I think it is interesting, after all that has happened, once Moses calls the people together to deliver the word of the Lord to them and to give them their work, what does he highlight first? First thing he goes to is God's command to obey the Sabbath, to observe a solemn weekly day of rest. Why would he do that? Well, it's possible he just wants to be a popular boss. So you always win the workforce by saying, here's your time off. Let's talk about that. But, but I think what he's getting at here, because it's a pattern we're going to see repeated over and over in our time together, is that God is working to undo the damage done by the golden calf rebellion. And specifically, I think Moses choosing to focus on this command first does that in two ways. First, it is a clear and stark reminder that even as they prepare to worship the Lord, they must only do so on his terms. They will do it as he commanded. You know, it's easy for us to forget, but in worshiping the golden calf, chapter 32, verse 4 tells us that the people declared they did so because these are your gods that delivered you out of Egypt. So they were worshiping for the right reason. They just horribly misdirected it toward the wrong object. They, they were driven by right motives toward the wrong end. So now God is reminding them with a strong warning that their worship in the form of their work will be done on his terms and on his timeline. And the second way that I think this command begins to undo the damage of the golden calf is by serving as one of the most stark, outwardly visible reminders of their covenant with the Lord, of the fact that they are his people. You see, we must never make the mistake of thinking that these biblical stories happened in a vacuum much less that they're, they're meant to just be mere morality tales. No, these are, these are real people doing real things in real times and real places. And so Israel's actions have taken place before the eyes of a watching world. People, nations have seen what has happened here. And Moses is constantly concerned throughout Exodus that, that the people's conduct not reflect poorly on the character of God. And he's constantly appealing to this. So just as their actions before the golden calf would have brought shame to the name of God, so now will their conduct demonstrate their complete and full dependence on the one true God, because this will look very different than anything the nations have seen before. So Moses has called the people together for the work, and then he spends most of the rest of chapters 35 through 39 again, going through the requirements of the work in meticulous detail. I mean, down to just the finest little points. Why does he do that? What does this show us about the character of God? You know, within the story itself, it makes sense, right? Moses has received the instructions from God, and now he has to pass it on. So, so we get why Moses does it, but stepping back to our reading of the scripture, why did God see fit to take up 12 chapters with what I know is the graveyard of many, many well-intentioned Bible reading plans. Don't act all spiritual. It is okay to acknowledge that you glaze over just a little bit when you read page after page of scintillating detail. Like, he made curtains of goat's hair, and he made 11 curtains, and the length was 30 cubits, and the breadth four cubits, and they were the same size. I mean, if that doesn't get the blood pumping, come on, I don't know what will do it. 
Maybe if you're an interior designer, maybe that gets you fired up. But the rest of us, it's okay. It's, it's tough. But, but I, what I think is made clear here is that God cares deeply, deeply about how he is worshiped. And that's something that both Israel and we need to hear over and over and over again. Why? Because as commentator Doug Stewart puts it, worship is utterly foundational to a proper relationship with God. You see, if our worship is rightly ordered, then our lives will increasingly come to reflect that. But if not, then tragedy will ensue just as it did for Israel. And we also know as much as we might want to argue otherwise, human nature hasn't changed. Just as Israel made a God in their own image that they thought they could control, we are constantly tempted to remake God in our image so that we could tame him, so that we could control him. But he will have none of that. And I think the passage gives us one more indication of that in chapter 39. So in chapter 39, verses 42 through 43, it says this, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then, then Moses blessed them. Why was it necessary for Moses to see the work before blessing them? Because he was the only one who had been on Sinai to see what God had shown them. He's the only one who is competent to judge whether the work, which was their worship, was worthy of blessing. Well, what about us then? Who is worthy and able and competent to judge the rightness of our worship? Do we allow the world, our coworkers, or our friends to sit in judgment of our worship or to dictate its terms? No, no, not that we can't rely on the counsel of mature godly believers, but at the end of the day, it's Jesus. It's only Jesus and it's his approval and his alone about which we must care and which we must seek. You'd be right to ask at this point then, what is worship of which he would approve? We're gonna to come to that in just a moment, but for now, I think Jonathan Gibson in his book, Reformation Worship, gives a, just a sparklingly captivating definition of it that will serve us well this morning. And he says, worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, human and angelic, to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator for who he is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for what he has done in creation and redemption, and for what he will do in the coming consummation, to whom be all praise and glory now and forever, world without end. Amen. And there are two components of that definition that I think are especially helpful for us today. First, he describes worship as a response. So just as the people's worship and work here is a result of and response to what God has done for them, namely delivering them from Egypt, and their work is in response to God's command, so too must we remember that our worship is always in response to what God has done for us and in conformity to what he has given us to do. It is never, it is never to merit his favor in our lives. That will lead us to some terrible places, but it is in response to who he is and what he has done. So that is the call to the work. 
Second, Gibson describes worship as a delight. And that brings us to our second point, which is the joy of the work. The joy of the work. Look back at chapter 40 again, verses 16 through 32. After summarizing again the instructions that God had given to Moses, who here stands in for the whole nation of Israel. When it says Moses, it's talking about the, the whole nation. What does it say happened? Well, look at verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And I won't read the whole passage again, but I do want the rhythm of what's happening here to just roll over you. So in the next 15 verses, what does it say? The tabernacle was erected as the Lord had commanded. The testimony was put into the ark as the Lord had commanded. The bread was arranged on the table as the Lord had commanded. The lamps were set up as the Lord had commanded. Incense was burnt as the Lord had commanded. The offerings were offered as the Lord had commanded. When they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded. Over and over and over again, we see a profound act of God's mercy in direct, because in direct contrast to the golden calf, which was explicitly not as the Lord had commanded. Now the people are carrying out the work that God has given them and their worship is exactly as God had commanded them to do. Why do I say this was an act of God's mercy? Because there is no higher work. There is no higher end to which we can point our lives than doing exactly what God has called us to do. And this is especially so in contrast to the destruction that God was ready to bring on them just a few chapters ago. And then because of how we see the work unfold in chapters 35 and 36, we see God's continued mercy to them. And so just a few highlights from there are first, we see God pulls in the whole community. He pulls in all the men and women of generous heart that he has given them to be a part of this work and worship. Specifically in chapter 35, verses four through five, it says, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And in verse 29, it says, all the men and women, those whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. So where before they were ready to give of their possessions to make an idol, Now they give freely to the work of the Lord. Second, we see that not only does God provide the materials needed, he also provides the skill. At the end of chapter 35, it says, God has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer. Um, Every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So he's given them the materials. He's given them this generous heart. He's given them the ability to do these things. And then finally, it says, look at how the people respond in chapter 36, verses five to seven. It says, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution to the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I love this so much. I love just the exuberant 
joy we see pouring out from the people here. And don't worry, I'm not going to turn this into a manipulative, crass appeal to bring until we have to sell you to stop bringing, because that's never going to happen. No, we're not going to do that. But I do want us to see here that true worship, that truly fulfilling the work of God ought to be a joy to us, not a drudgery. What, what more could we desire than to do what God has given us to do? When you reflect on your life, what, what more do you want from him than that? And of course, we haven't even looked at the most important reason that this is a work of joy. Because you see, all the way back in chapter 25, months and months and months ago for us, God told Moses that he wants them to make him a sanctuary that he may dwell in their midst. That changes everything. Because you see, this isn't just busy work God has given them to keep them out of trouble. No, they are preparing a place for God to be with them, to dwell among them. And you know what? Knowing that gives a whole new depth to the tragedy of the rebellion at the golden calf. First, of course, it was an act of sin against a holy God. But second, it is that they were settling for so much less than what God had for them to do. You know, I'm reminded of Lewis's famous passage in The Weight of Glory. And many of you are going to be familiar with this, but always remember when we read Lewis, he would have said it Britishly and it would have been more meaningful. But nonetheless, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so we are. Imagine, imagine the people had an opportunity to prepare for the God of the universe to dwell with them. And they settled for a metal cow. It is okay to laugh because that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Now, before we pull a muscle patting ourselves on the back for not being like them, do not doubt for a second that we so easily do the same. You know, what do I mean? Friend, if your life and your worth and your value and your joy are bound up in and defined by your spouse and your kids and your family, even though those things are a good gift from the Lord, then your God is too small. If your life and your worth and your value and your joy are bound up in and defined by your job or your professional or material success, even though those things can be a good gift from the Lord, then your God is far too small. If your life and your worth and your value and your joy are bound up in your politics, or heaven help us, in your social media presence, then for the love of all that is good and holy, your God is far, far, far too small. And before God pulls up Moses and grinds it into a powder and makes you drink it, then please put down your phone, turn off your computer, open your door, go outside and meet your living, breathing flesh and blood neighbor. You never know, you might even make a friend. And we need that in this life, in this world. You know, I recognize that the problem with statements like that is that we all want to cheer because we think it applies to 
them. Whoever they are. But something I've been convicted about over the years, and I would like to think that this is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, is I've often said something to the effect of, you know, I just, I really love good, hard preaching. You know, that, that preaching that just punches you right in the gut. What I actually mean is, I like good, hard preaching that punches other people in the gut. That's the best kind. I don't particularly like getting punched in the gut. So let me make like a drunken street ball this morning and punch us all in the gut. I don't want you sitting here thinking about so-and-so really needs to hear this. This would be a good message for them. Let me encourage you and let me encourage me in, in all sermons and in, in all of our life in the body of Christ to pray and ask the Lord to show you and to show me where does, where does my life where does my worship and where does my work settle for anything less than what your glory and your name are due, than what you have given me to do? That's where we need to orient our hearts. And maybe you say, you know what? I do want that. I do want him to show me these things, but it's just not as clear for me or it doesn't seem to be as clear for me as it was for Israel here. What am I to do? Well, that brings us to our final point, the end of the work. The end of the work. Look back with me one more time to chapter 40, verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. This is a momentous occasion in the life of Israel. They have finished the work that God has said would prepare them for him to come and dwell with them. So, End of story, right? They've made it. Not so. Because, of course, unlike Moses and the people at this point, we know that for all of its splendor, all of its glory, that, all, that the tabernacle and the temple that would follow it will one day not be inhabited by the glory of God. That one day they will be torn down as the people regress once again into open rebellion and God's glory departs. Even that is not the end of the story. Because these were always meant to be temporary things that would prepare and point the people of Israel and us towards something eternal. You see, God knew, he knew his people were going to continue to rebel, just as he knew that about us. And he could have, and he would have been completely right to condemn and destroy us, y'all. And yet... And yet, because he truly is gracious and merciful, he truly is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, what did he do? He sent his son, born of a virgin, to live a life of perfect obedience who would go on to lay down his life for us on the cross. And do you remember one of the last things Jesus declared with his dying breath? It is finished. And he had promised to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. You see, no longer is it dependent on us to prepare a place for God to come and dwell with us. Rather, he is doing so even now, preparing the place. And he promises that the day is coming when he will dwell with us forever. And it will be glorious, exceeding every possible hope you can imagine. And if you think I'm overreaching to make this connection Hebrews 9 makes it explicit for us. And this is, this is long, but it's important. So I want you to hear 
the word of the Lord from Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, and then 23 through 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Praise God. So if Christ has finished the work, then what is the work we are to be doing? What has he left for us to do? Well, as it happens, some of Jesus' followers asked him that exact question in John chapter six. They said, what must we do to be doing the work of God? To which Jesus responded, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And that's the invitation we extend to you, that you would repent and believe in Jesus whom the Father has sent. And if you've already done that, then the entire work that he has given you to do can be summed up just as he said in Matthew 22 in this, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. How do we do this? It's right there. We go, we tell the world of Jesus. We go and we make disciples. We go and we teach others to obey him. We do good. We hate evil. We love our enemies. We do good to those who would hate us persecute us. This is our work. Let's finish it well, not to earn God's favor, but rather let us love in this way because he first loved us. Oh God, may you make us into and ever find us to be a worshiping and obedient people in all of our ways for all of our days until your work is complete and you bring us home. Until that day, may we delight in the work you give us to do and may we finish well. You know, every week at Redeemer, we get to see and participate in a visible reminder of the finished work by taking the Lord's Supper together at the close of every service. And if you're new to or simply visiting Redeemer this morning, welcome. We're so Glad that you're here. This is a family meal that we take in remembrance of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so if you're here today and you have professed faith in Christ and made that known to the church, then we invite you to take and be a part of this with us. But if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior, if you have not yet surrendered your life to him, then I would ask you not to take, not out of any desire to exclude you, 
but because our invitation to you is still to come. We would love to talk with you more about who he is and what he has done and how you can know him. In fact, there's a table out in the lobby there. It's got some resources on it. And now or after the service, there'll be a staff member or an elder out there. We would all be thrilled to talk with you. You're welcome to do that or come by anytime. That would be our great joy. But for those who are taking, we invite you to spend this time in prayer, reflecting on the work of the Lord, asking him to show you your sin and help you walk in repentance. So in just a moment, we're going to sing. At the time we'll take, and then I'll come back and we'll take together.